Father, we pray that your spirit would guide us, that you would pour out your grace. Many of us woke up this morning with so many questions. We walked in here with anxieties and worries that we can't seem to turn off or tune out. We're harboring confusion about who we are and where we're going and doubts about whether we'll ever be the person that we want to be or that you want us to be. Some of us are hurting deeply inside. We feel abandoned. We feel like leftovers, and we need to sense your presence and your grace. Though we may, may not fully be ready for your response, all of us have questions and we need answers. Would you let us sense somehow that you can be trusted, that you want our good, that you want us to find you in all of our questions and our concerns? So whether for the first time this morning or as one more step in a lifelong quest, let us open ourselves up to your word and would you meet us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Anyone who watched uh, the TV series Seinfeld knows that Jerry is a big fan of Superman, uh, both in character but also in real life. And he talks about a time in real life when he got the Superman costume for Halloween. And he says that when he got it, it was in a box, and on the side of the box, it actually said, this is true, do not attempt to fly. He says they printed that as a warning because kids would put it on and apparently jump off roofs. I love the idea of the kid who's, pardon me, stupid enough to think he actually is Superman, but smart enough to check the box before he goes off the roof. We need to be told very obvious things, don't we? Other real product warnings include a label on the silver sun shields that you put in your windshield. They're probably out today. Uh, And it says, do not attempt to drive while this is in place. And for you moms and dads out there, there's a label on some strollers that says, caution, remove infant before attempting to fold up for storage. You would think these things would be obvious, but how many biographies do we read? How many stories do we hear from people toward the end of life that say things that, like, we put just too much time in at the office, that I put inordinate amount of hope on certain things in this world only to be disappointed? And so maybe we need warning labels for life, for things that should be rather obvious, like a label for our jobs that says, warning, do not attempt to build your life around your vocation. Or labels on our kids. Caution cannot serve as a proxy for your unmet desires. Or on our bank accounts, do not seek to find security in this because no matter how much you save, it will never, ever be enough. All of our foundations in life are vulnerable. So how do we proceed? How do we respond when the ground under us that we've trusted to be secure proves untrustworthy? This is one of the questions that the entire book of Chronicles, which is in two parts in your Bibles, are asking and answering. And that's part of what the prayer that we read this morning is dealing with. Now, the Chronicler's audience, and we call uh, them that because we don't know who wrote this this book, but the people were hearing this, hearing this prayer that was 
uh, written down and then given hundreds of years later, we're living in a very insecure time. The nation of Israel had been divided into north and south, and then they had been conquered by foreign armies, and this had shaken their trust in God. And this was written hundreds of years later to people who were in exile that were then leaving Persia and coming back to Israel. And so we read Jehoshaphat's prayer, but it's given to people down the line of history who have experienced exile and experienced the destruction of the temple, which is the very symbol of their faith and security and where this prayer was written. This was a sort of, to get our minds around how grave this was for the people of Israel, this was a sort of holocaust in their shared understanding of who they were. And so the readers of this letter were absolutely devastated. And as these exiles began to trickle back into Israel from Persia, many had left the faith, many were having a difficult time trusting God again. And the question on everyone's mind was, who are we now? Now that our national identity, our spiritual identity has been shattered, who are we? And who is this God that has led us to this, these circumstances and now leading us back into the land that He once gave us? And so the chronicler uses this prayer of Jehoshaphat, who was a king, to remind these exiles of their history. And he says, listen, essentially, you who live in uncertain times, this is your story. This is the story that God has been writing, and I want you to tune into that during these uncertain times. King Jehoshaphat, and really, what a boss name for a king, right? These Christians that want to name their children after biblical names of heroes, why do they never choose Jehoshaphat? It's always David or Samuel or something like that. We were going to name our first child Jehoshaphat, but we decided on Nick instead. So, you're welcome. But like everyone else, the king is scared. He's terrified. In verse 3, which we didn't read, it says that he was alarmed, but that kind of downplays this fear that he was sorely afraid. Because why? The text tells us that this vast array of Moabites and Ammonites and Minyanites were coming against him and his people. And he's the king. He's supposed to give reassurance to the nation. He's supposed to have it all together. And he's afraid. And everyone's looking to him. And so he looks to God. He doesn't immediately try to forge a treaty or look to diplomacy or find an alliance. He doesn't scramble to solve it himself. No, he invites the community to come and to pray their fears. And people from all over Judah gather together, and the king prays on their behalf. And he starts, first of all, by acknowledging the story and acknowledging God's rule. Acknowledging that God has led them in this process, and he acknowledges the, God's promises, and then he lays out the situation that he's facing. Now, we don't have time to inspect every single part of the prayer, but it does offer us a good template for our own prayer life. He moves from praise for, to God for who he is, praise about God's character. He recounts the history of God's care for them as people. He moves into thanksgiving, and then he lays out the situation of need. 
And we're not looking at each of these prayers to say, this is how you must pray each and every time, but to lay out some models, some templates for all of us, and hopefully just to give us all some encouragement to pray. Because prayer is difficult, and it takes time to learn how to pray. But I always find it helpful personally to start where Jehoshaphat does, with praise and thanksgiving, because it's very centering and it provides us with perspective and ensures that our prayer life doesn't become just a litany of our felt needs, that it acknowledges the character of God. It acknowledges who we're actually speaking to. But notice how he ends the prayer. And this is what I want us to focus upon. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes upon you. That in itself is the perfect prayer. So often we are tempted to minimize our fear and deny its existence. So we get asked, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Our lives could be falling, falling apart, and yet we say, oh, I'm fine. I'm okay. We minimize our fear and deny its existence, or we maximize our fear and think that it defines us that our present struggles, our present situation and difficult circumstances are the whole story of our lives. We minimize or we maximize. But the king does neither. He acknowledges his fear and then he looks to God. He doesn't pretend that he's not afraid even though he's a king. Instead, along with his people, he prays his fear and he waits for God's answer, his deliverance his salvation. And that prayer illustrates the gospel, friends. Though way back in history, and it's sort of enclosed in all of these historical details, what is Jehoshaphat doing in essence? He's noticing his lack. He's assessing his situation. He's saying, I need rescue. I need deliverance. I need, in fact, we need as a nation salvation. And then he's standing firm upon God's promises and His character, and He's waiting on God to intervene. The Bible is full of stories of God conquering enemies, conquering death, conquering sin, and inviting His people to stand in His victory, even when things look grim circumstantially. But you see, these individual battles are meant to point to something else. God winning these individual battles for His people are meant to point to Him winning the big battle, the ultimate battle that has everything to say about the battles that we face day in and day out. To try and find a way to look to God's salvation in our lives and His story in history instead of just seeking to rescue ourselves, to scramble to figure things out. So, back to the beginning a moment. If you try and find rescue from your disordered lives, from your hurts, from your failures in your vocation, if you try to find rescue as relationships dissolve, if you stake your hope upon your health, your bank account, and these things begin to fail you, and they will, then you're lost and you're flailing around in anxiety. If those things were your hope, they were your identity, they were your security, your all, 
and you lose them, game over. Gabriel Mate, I think I've referenced him before, is a medical doctor who writes about the addiction process as filling a spiritual void. And he says this, in a state of spiritual poverty, we will be seduced by whatever it is that can make us insensate to our dread. That's a pregnant sentence, right? In a state of spiritual poverty, we will be seduced by whatever it is that can make us insensate to our dread. That ultimately, he goes on to say, is the origin of the addiction process, since the very essence of that process is the drive to take in from the outside that which properly arises from within. He doesn't mean self-generated. He means spiritual resources that reside internally. We fixate on external sources of pleasure or power or meaning. The sparser the innate joy that springs from being alive, the more fervently we seek joy's pale substitute, pleasure. The less our inner strength, the giving our craving for power, or the greater our craving for power, the feebler our awareness of truth, the greater the dread, the more vigorous the gravitational pull of the addiction process. Now, he works with addicts in the Hastings district of Vancouver, B.C., whose lives have been absolutely wrecked by the addiction process. But his premise applies to everyone here because what he believes is that we're all addicted in some way on the scale to something, that we all try to squeeze primary meaning out of something that can't shoulder the weight of our desires and our hopes. And so we turn reasonably good things as well as terrible things into addictions that cripple us and hobble us. He quotes a medical doctor who also works with addiction, but the quote is relevant to more than substance abuse. And he says this, it's hard to get enough of something that's almost enough. It's hard to get enough of something that's almost enough. Good jobs are pleasurable, and we can begin to assign meaning to them, and we get into our career, and we begin to find joy, we get recognition, and it's almost enough. It tells us good things. Our relationships, a spouse, a great marriage, they can feel like the real thing, that we can hang all of our weights, all of our hopes upon this marriage, and it's almost enough. It's hard to get enough of something that's almost enough. That could be a Bible verse, and it kind of is, because Jesus tells us, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When we put our trust in tangible things and they fail us, great is the fall of it. Now, building a house takes time, and if you've been a Christian for more than a few days, you've probably given thought and consideration to this and asked, how does Christianity overlay upon my life and my desires and my job and my relationship and my bank account? 
And sometimes it overlays quite well because we can baptize our successes with the actions and the goodness of God. God must really like me because things are going swimmingly in life. And it's not until difficult times come that the foundations of our life really begin to be exposed for what they are. But friends, what often feels like God abandoning us, God punishing us, God being disappointed in us, is often Him allowing us to see that we've built our lives on something that can't hold the weight of our desires, something that's bound to disappoint us, something other than Him. And He's wanting us to see sort of the faulty architecture of our lives before it gets too late, before our life crashes. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. If your foundation is built upon who God is ultimately, if it's built upon the stories of His faithfulness and His care for His people and what He says about you, when you lose your job, when you lose your health, when your bank account diminishes. It will hurt, let's be honest. These are real things. But we won't lose everything. We'll have the resources to be okay because your identity, your security wasn't there to begin with. You see, we can lose these little battles because if we're living in light of God winning the big battle, which has already been decided, we can still stay somewhat grounded as difficulty come, as those waves come against our house. Now, I want to be careful that I'm not outlining a formula here that's going to work every time, like it does in Jehoshaphat's life, that you just pray your fears, you remember who God is, you sing your trust, and presto, everything is good again, that you'll always have the sweet ending that Jehoshaphat did. The enemies will be destroyed with three days of plunder to boot. That's really not the point of this prayer, not for returning exiles and not for us. The point is, ultimately, that God always, always, always fights for His people. And the proof is ultimately on the cross. And if it's in Jesus, if it's in His victory, then we can be rooted in our inmost person, then we can weather the storms of life that we all encounter. We can have poise, we can have peace, we can have security without minimizing the pain, without minimizing our fears and our anxiety and crying out to God about those. We can have an internal poise because of in whom we stand. It doesn't mean that we minimize our fears or pretend things don't hurt. They do. But you pray your fears. We pray our fears and we ask for ultimate deliverance. Israel had lost its North Star. Jehoshaphat was praying in a temple that no longer existed for the people reading this letter. This was the sign of God's presence and it had been destroyed and they could not imagine how they could be in relationship with God without this temple. 
It was a sign of God's favor, of His presence, His work in their lives. It was their shared understanding that God is with them and for them, and it was gone. But you see, only in the loss of that temple could they see what and who it ultimately pointed to. Because Jesus comes on the scene three to four hundred years after this is written as the final and ultimate sign of God's faithfulness. The sign that says God will never, ever, ever leave you and He loves you. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Son Jesus who does come And it says that He tabernacled among us, that He was the living embodiment of what that temple pointed to, Your presence, Your favor, and now that favor extends across the face of our planet and includes everyone and invites everyone in. Father, I pray that we here in this church would be agents of that, that we would point people to that true temple, that our doors would be flung open to bring people in because You have brought us in. Lord, I pray that You would help us to pray our fears, and part of this seems so esoteric and so disconnected from real life. What does prayer do when our child is sick, when our job is up in jeopardy? But God, help us to see that it does. Help us to see that it calms our hearts and calms our fears just knowing that You are there. And would You be with all of us who are presently hurting in this congregation? And those of us, which is all of us, who will encounter pain and trial and heartache in the future, would we learn to pray our fears and learn to look to you? And would you be there? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.